You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for November 2013. Today's episode is titled, Partnering with God. What does it mean to partner with God in the workplace? There are three options. Number one, you are the senior partner and God is the junior partner. Number two, you and God are equal partners. Or number three, God is the senior partner and you are the junior partner. Organizational leaders must be clear that God is the senior partner and they are junior partners. The only agenda of junior partners is to discern and obey the will and ways of the senior partner. Organizations committed to this truth will train workers accordingly. Success will be denominated in terms of obedience to and alignment with the will and ways of God. Any other agenda by junior partners will be an act of rebellion against the senior partner, and rebellion will not be blessed. Therefore, everything in business is about the discernment of and alignment with the will and ways of God. This means that business is a holy activity. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Partnering with God. Cleburne called me and told me that there was a question that had been posed to you guys a few weeks ago, and that is, what does it mean to partner with God? So uh, that sounded like a good topic to attack and talk about that, try to gain a, a biblical perspective of it. A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a Christian college, and I was speaking to their international students uh, in their graduate program. The professor that introduced me got up and said, we here at this college believe strongly uh, in integrating our faith with our work. And uh, that's really the first time I'd really heard someone introduce me that way. I'd certainly heard that term, but I'd never been introduced that way as someone that was trying to integrate their faith and their work. So I began to think about that. You know, it's distracting when you begin to think about something you're supposed to speak because now you, you're, you're not focused on what you're trying to say. You're focused on another thought. So I had to cl- gather myself and you know, could make my presentation. Then on my way home, and it was a good drive home, I was able to think about that. And I'm asking myself, what did he mean by integrating faith and work? And then I realized, well, what he was talking about was he had learned work, like most of us have, from the world. He had uh, grown up. I think in a Christian home, but really got no training about work there from a biblical perspective. Had been in a church, but had no training there from a biblical perspective about work. Had gone to a Christian college and had no training there from about work biblically. And so he had gone into the workplace and what he learned about work was what he learned from the world. And so now he was, as a professor, was having this epiphany moment and realizing, you know, really we need to integrate faith and work, but didn't really know how to do that. So it occurred to me as I was thinking about that, you know, maybe what he's thinking about is that he's inviting God into a world that God really doesn't belong in. Because, you know, work is kind of seen as, you know, not very spiritual and something that doesn't really have a lot to do with God. So we're inviting God into this world world here that he doesn't really belong in because we're we're being benevolent to God. So that was kind of the idea that I got from him. And as I pondered that, I realized, well, how upside down that could be. Well, I think that's that's kind of the way we think about partnering with God. We, we think of him as 
you know, maybe he really doesn't belong here. This really isn't his purview. But since we're Christians and we want to be kind and gracious to God, we'll invite him in. So if that's your view of, of partnering with God, can I, can I uh, possibly challenge that this morning? And let's talk about biblically what it means to partner with God. One of the things that helps us here is to look at the Greek language. You know, the New Testament was written in the Greek language. And much of what we know about Christianity comes is found in the New Testament, at least the fullest revelation of it. So there are a number of words that are translated um, various ways in the New Testament that could imply a partnership arrangement. For example, you've heard of the word koinonia. You probably heard that word. It, it's normally translated fellowship. But it suggests a partnering arrangement where you're connecting in a fellowshipping way. There's another word that talks about being a comrade or a mate or a friend. Uh, another word that talks about being a joint partner. There's another one that's specifically about working together. And then the word I want to focus on today is, a, is another word. It means to, uh, to basically take someone alongside you. And to walk together. I think that's probably the profoundest sense of partnering that I've seen as I've looked at the New Testament. The word there in the Greek word is paralambano. Now I know you're going to remember this. I'm going to help you remember it. Okay. The word para we get parallel from. See, that's pretty easy to see that connection. Lambano is the word for take, the common word for take in the New Testament. So paralambano would be to take someone alongside of you and walk together. Now the question in that scenario is who's in charge? You've really got three options. You got a partnership here. You got either if I if I came alongside Mark and put my arm around Mark and said, Mark, come walk with me, okay, then either I'm in charge or Mark's in charge or we equally in charge. That would be your options, correct? Now, when most of you are in business at some level. Some of you are business owners, business leaders, executives. So you're used to being in charge, aren't you? That's all right. You can shake your hand and say, yes, we're, I'm used to being in charge. I'm used to being the boss. I'm used to calling the shots. Well, if you are in a yoke together with God into a, in a business venture, then who's in charge? Huh? You you think you're in charge? No. Well, you know what happened in the in the garden. Adam and Eve had a partnership with God. God placed them in the garden, gave them a work order. You take care of the garden. You tend the garden. You multiply and grow and expand the garden. And so, who was in charge there? God was in charge there, correctly. And Adam and Eve decided they didn't like that arrangement. They wanted a different partnership. So, what did they choose? They said, we want to be equal. We want to be equal partners. We want to do what you do. We want to live like you live. We want to have the power that you have. And so they wanted to be equal partners. They didn't want to be the junior partner. And they really didn't say they wanted to be the senior partner. They just wanted to be equal partners. Well, hopefully you can see fairly readily that didn't work well. In fact, we live today in light of that decision. And Consequently, we, sin is rampant in our world because we are not equal with God. There's no way we can be. So partnering with God must be an arrangement where he's the senior partner and we're the junior partner. 
Now, a lot gives a lot of people a lot of grief because they say, look, that's my business. I own it. I run it. He's not here. Well, then they say, okay, well, maybe he's here sort of. I actually had a one client one time that decided he wanted a, a physical representation that God was in his business. So he set up an office for God. It furnished it, set it up. It was a beautifully well-appointed office. And, of course, no human being was ever in there because it was for God. I haven't seen well, one person do that, uh, but he did it. And I asked him, I said, what's the point? He said, well, God needs a place. I said, but God's omnipresent. Why does he need a place? He said, well, it's, it tells me he's here. He's my partner. I said, what partner is he? Is he the junior partner or the senior partner or an equal partner? What is he? Well, he really didn't have a clear answer. He hadn't thought about that. He was just trying to be benevolent. He was trying to be like that professor. You know, I want to invite God into a place where maybe he doesn't belong. So you can see we've got a lot of confusion in the Christian world about what it is to partner with God. So what I want to do is read you a text of scripture and hopefully challenge you to some clarity. So this is out of Colossians chapter 2, verse, starting with verse 6. I'm just going to read four verses. And we'll, we'll talk about this in light of what it means to partner with God. Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, which word was paralambano? That would be a good question. It was early on. In fact, when I read, so then just as you received Christ Jesus Lord, that's the word paralambano. Now you say, well, that's not partner. Well, you need to understand how the word is used in the New Testament. The word parlambano shows up about 50 times in the New Testament. And depending on whether you are the one that's leading or you're the one that's the junior of the partnership, it depends on how it's translated. For example, when Jesus led his disciples up to the Mount of Transfiguration, it says he took them. He put his arm around them figuratively and they walked with him up to the mountain. But whatever Jesus was, what it talks about, like in 1 Corinthians, about um, being, let me find the text here. I had it in my notes. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says this, For what I received, I pass on to you of first importance, that Christ died for the sins according to Scripture. So when, it's, when you are the recipient, you're the junior partner, Partner, the partnership is one of receiving. When you're the senior partner, the partnership is one of giving. That's a very important distinction because Christ is here giving you direction, giving you instructions, giving you guidance. So when Paul writes here in Colossians 2, so then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, he's talking about us as junior partners. Now, what is it that you received? 
Well, number one is everything that you have, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, your opportunities, everything has been given to you. Do you have anything that wasn't given to you? Did you create yourself? Did you create your gifts, your talents, your personality, your opportunities? Did you decide when you'd be born, where you'd be born, what family you'd be born into, what opportunities you'd have? Did you decide what your aptitudes, your skills would be? You didn't decide any of that. That was all given to you. So you received that from the senior partner. So the senior partner has said to you, okay, Kevin, this is the reason I have made you. I want you to do this. He's directing you into his work, the work activities he's ordained you to do, which means he's engaged in the workplace. In fact, when you stop and ask yourself, what is the origin of work? Well, the origin of work is God. He's the one who created work. He invented it. And he defined all the rules of it. And he put man initially in a garden to work. And, of course, man sinned. So when man sinned, he's now thrown out of the garden, but he's still supposed to work. And now work has just become harder. But, see, God is the one who directs and defines work. So it's not the idea that this professor had when he introduced me that God was doesn't really belong in the workplace. No, God is the definer of the workplace. Whatever you do, if you've discerned the will of God, you are under his partnership. He is the senior partner. You're the junior partner. And your job is to receive the assignment he has for you. Now, you know, how many of you are junior partners? A few of you are junior partners? Okay. You understand the senior partner calls your shots. He's the one that says, this is what you will do. This is how it will be done. And this is the direction we're going to go in. Now, you might have a voice in it, but the senior partner ultimately makes the choices. He makes the call. Well, that's who it is with God. God is our senior partner, and he wants to direct us and guide us into his will and his ways. So he's saying here in Colossians 2, just as you've received your orders, your directive from from Christ, when you came to him, He said, continue to live in him. Continue to live as you came to him. In other words, when you came to Christ, you enter into a relationship where he's going to direct your life. And now that that relationship continues. It just doesn't apply to salvation and stop there. It expands to all of life. God wants to direct everything in your life. He wants to direct your marriage. He wants to direct how you parent your children. He wants to direct you in the church world and in your public policy world. Every place where you have activities and you have opportunities, he wants to be in charge. He wants his will done his ways in everything. So to partner with God includes everything in life. It's holistic. There's nothing excluded. Now, that's hard for us because, frankly, we want to be in charge. You know, we want to make our own choices. We want to be our own boss. In fact, there are many people that, that really reject this idea. I was talking to a young man yesterday at lunch, and this young man had uh, had made some mistakes, and he had gotten arrested. And he was really repenting for this, and he was paying a pretty high price for what he did wrong. And he was talking to one of his buddies. This is sometimes dangerous to talk to your buddies. His buddy is telling him, you know, God's not in this thing. You messed up. You're on your own. Well, guess what? That is not true. God is into everything. He is always working in every situation. 
The senior partner never abandons the junior partner. Even when the junior partner messes up, and we will all mess up, the senior partner is there to guide us and direct us. So just as you have received Christ when you came to him, and now he's taken his arm and put his arm around you, and as your senior partner is going to direct you in your life, then you need to continue walking with that senior partner. You need to continue to stay submitted to him. Now, what does this look like? Well, he gives you some clues here. And you guys being in the construction business, many of you, you'll appreciate these particular clues because these are construction metaphors. I may wake you up this morning. We're going to do a construction metaphor here. He says this, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him. Now that word rooted there means to have a very firm foundation. Now for me, it's a very, it's a very clear picture because when I, when I built my house, my dad, who was a long time in the construction business, he was a mechanical contractor, but also was very knowledgeable in construction in general, he told me several things. One of the first things he told me is you put a good foundation in. So the only thing I know to, knew, knew to do to get a good foundation was to put piers. So we have piers, two rock, and a slab on top of piers. And my house now is over 10 years old, and you walk around a house, and there's not a crack anywhere. It's not moved a bit. And that's, that's because it's got a great foundation. That's a good foundation. So that's where we have to be rooted in Christ. We have to have our foundation in Christ. Great clarity that whatever you're going to do at work today, the greatest thing you can do is get the senior partner to direct you in what it is he's called you to do today. Whatever that may be. Which means you've got to learn to hear him. And you've got to learn to discern what he's saying to you. Then he he goes on to there, he says, built up in him. Now what does it mean to be built up in him? Literally, the Greek, you know, the Greek word is more uh, colorful than, than English. You know, Greek is, has a lot of nuances. So this particular word for built up means to build on something that's already been laid. That's literally what it means. So it implies there's a foundation that's already been laid, and now you're going to build on top of that foundation. I know when we built our house, it was just an amazing thing. They spent about three months out there doing all this stuff the piers the underground plumbing underground electricals you know the slab and all that and then you look out there and all, you don't see hardly anything it's just a slab and then if you go away for about two or three weeks and come back all of a sudden wow there's this huge structure that's there and the builder had to tell me just cool your jets because now it gets slow again the frame went up fast but after that it gets slow again in fact, the painter spent about three weeks in the house. You know, I got real slow for a while. So, but what we were doing, we were building on this foundation, this incredible work that went in the foundation. Now we're building on top of it and really finishing out this beautiful structure. Well, that's a picture here for us. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants you to get rooted in Christ as the senior partner and now build and grow up in him, which means that for you to do whatever it is you're called to do, you have to be growing in Christ to do it. Now, that that's foreign to us. We're not used to the idea that when we hire somebody, they need to be growing in Christ. That's not on our, our check sheet when we go to hire somebody. No, when we, go, we decide we need somebody, 
what we do is we sit down and we write down the skills that we need. And then we go start interviewing, trying to find somebody who's got those skills. And we don't put on that list growing in Christ. At least not many people do. So consequently, we go out there and we hire pretty much like the world hires. We don't really hire biblically. And then you start bringing up standards like this. The pushback is, well, I mean, we're not a church. No, this is not about being a church. Well, you know, work as happens in the natural, not in the spiritual. Well, wait a minute. Who is it that defined and created work? It was God. What kind of being is God? He is a spirit being. Well, if he's a spirit being, that means the spiritual reality of God created the physical reality we call work. That means work in the physical is deeply rooted in the spiritual. Now, you know, it's interesting. Even some unsaved people have kind of figured this out. We Christians haven't figured it out too well. For example, I was having lunch one day with a senior leader for, uh, used to be with Ross Perot. Any of y'all ever worked for Ross Perot? Ever been around him? Well, Ross had a policy, and I didn't know about this. And his policy was that if anyone in his company, anyone, committed adultery and he found out, he fired him on the spot. There was no discussion about it. There was no time to explain what happened. It was automatic termination. You're out of here. And as we were talking about that, that day, and we were talking about biblical principles in the workplace, this guy had a kind of a, an epiphany because he suddenly saw why Ross did it. He said, I realize now what Ross was going after. Ross was recognizing that there's something deeply inside that man that caused him to betray his wife. And if they'll betray his wife, they'll betray the company. He says, I can't handle that. And so he eliminated that without any question. This is back 20, 30 years ago when you could do things like that. You can't do that as well today because they have they perceive they have rights and they have lawyers that will come alongside them and sue you. So you've got to be more careful. You've got to document things, etc. But back then when you could be more, more the boss, he could do that. Well, he was recognizing the spiritual reality at work in that person. Now, he may not have fully understood that, but, you know, that was the policy that blessed him. You know, he was able to build a fairly significant organization that had a pretty good reputation over a fairly short period of time. You know, he started in the 60s, and by the, by the early 80s, 15, 20 years into it, this was a well-known, you know, highly recognized company. Now, I'm not holding that up as a model. I'm just simply saying he had a sense of how spiritual reality played into the workplace. Better than most of us do. And what we've got to do is we've got to begin to see reality as God sees it. If we're going to be built up and rooted in him. He goes on to say, strengthen in the faith as you were taught. Now, today we're in a world where people like to be self-taught. And it, on one level, that's okay. You need to need to be a good student. You need to study and work hard. But we all need to be taught. Christianity is a historical faith. It's been around for about 2,000 years. And much of what we know has been taught to us by various people who themselves have been taught. By people who have been taught. By people who have been taught. You see, there's a tradition 
of teaching and training that goes on in Christianity. And that's why Paul is saying here, it's important that people be taught. If you are simply self-taught, and that's the only way you've been taught, you will be very limited in your perspective. So you want to look for people in your organization who are teachable. In fact, one of the criteria that, that I like to tell my clients is, look, when you hire somebody, you know, you many times you can't discern real clearly where they are spiritually. You don't necessarily know where they are. So you start looking for humility, looking for teachability, looking for submission to authority. Because basically when you hire someone, you know what you've done? You've hired someone to disciple. That's what you've done. There's a famous story involving Peter Drucker. Do you know who Peter Drucker was? Arguably the father of modern management theory. He was hired by the board of service master to come in. And the first thing he asked them is, what business are you in? And they said, well, we're in the carpet cleaning business. We're in the pest control business. You know, we're in the uh, lawn care business. They started listing all the business activities they do. Peter Drucker says, no, you're not. That's not your business. I said, what? That's what we do. He said, yeah, I know that's what you do, but that's not your business. And so they're looking at him all very perplexed. What's our business then? He says, it's plain and simple. You're in the training business. You cannot hire qualified people to do all the things that you do and do it with excellence. Because they're not being trained in the homes. They're not being trained in the churches. They're not being trained in school. And so now you as the employer, you've got to train them. You get to disciple them. That's the only way you're going to produce the workers that you need to do what you're called to do. Well, that stunned the board of service master. But it also transformed the company because they adopted that philosophy that we are a training organization. And we're going to find people that are trainable, that we can teach that we can disciple, and we're going to teach them how to be great workers, how to be rooted in Christ, how for Christ to be the senior partner, and they're the junior partner, and they're going to grow up and mature in Christ and do what God had called them and created them to do. Now, that's a pretty bold way to build a business. But I think all of you know what happened with ServiceMaster. It went on to become one of the, the great companies of the 20th century but because it was built and rooted in this idea of partnering with God, where God is a senior partner, and God is engaged, and God is purposeful, and God is directive, and God is discipling you in the process of using you in the business world. It's a whole different perspective. Most people have no clue that this is indeed what the New Testament is teaching us about business. Well, it goes on to say there, Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And you might say, well, that's kind of strange. Why would he say overflowing with thankfulness? Well, how many of you are really thankful? I mean, really, really thankful. Most of us are pretty good complainers. We've got lots of things to complain about, lots of things we're not happy about, lots of things that have not worked out well for us from our perspective. And so, you know, we've got this internal turmoil going on. What he's saying here is, is get thankful. Now, why is it we should be thankful? Well, one day he said is all things work together for good. All things are working together for alignment with God. Now, you know good is a divine attribute. You know that? And we know that from the interaction that Jesus had with a rich young ruler. 
where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and said, what, Master, what good thing must I do? Or he said, good, Master, what much thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't answer his question. He focuses on the fact that the man called him good. He said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. And what he's saying is, you have hit upon a divine attribute, and you've hit on a truth. You've called me God, because you've given me an attribute of God. So good is a divine attribute. So in Romans, when Paul says God works all things together for good, what he's saying is he works all things together for alignment with himself. So when God is working in your life, he's working to bring you as your as a junior partner in alignment with him. Basically, he's saying, I've taken you on as a junior partner, but you need a lot of work. And I'm here to work you into being a good junior partner. And I'm going to do that through training and through situations which will challenge you and all kinds of circumstances of life that are going to hone you and develop you and get you lined up with me. That's what he's after. That's how a good senior partner works. He's always working to develop the junior partner. And so in that process, there's going to be challenges, all kinds of difficulties. Be thankful. Be thankful. Knowing everything works together for good. It doesn't matter how hard it is, how challenging, how perplexing, maybe how, how wrong you might think something is. How you may have been abused or been misunderstood, mistreated in some way. God is there doing incredible things and things in you that you don't even begin to understand because he's a good senior partner. Then there's a warning. We've got to be very careful here. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, I, I don't think anyone here has ever been a prisoner of war. I don't think you're old enough or been in the right situation to do that. But, you know, when you get captured... In a war situation, you really don't have much of a choice. You know, you are usually trapped, and there's not many ways out. You are captured. But here it says, see that one takes you captured, which means there's, there's a choice. You have the ability to stop being captured. Well, what is it that captures you? What captures you is the philosophy of the world. Deceptive thinking of the world. And you can stop that by simply embracing the thinking of the senior partner. As you embrace his thinking now, you have the ability to walk in the will and ways of God. You have the ability to see things from his perspective and not change the way you live your life. So that's where your responsibility is to study and to learn. Now, what I find working with senior leaders is many times they're very quick to recognize my people need training. I, they need massive training. Uh, I recently, I was uh, at Disneyland uh, with a client, and you may not know they have a Disney Institute. Are you aware of that? They've got, you're not aware of that? They've got Disney Institute. And a Disney Institute is a training program. And my client had uh, signed up all the Everyone in his company, something like 200 people in his company, to go through the Disney Institute. And my, my client, who was the senior leader, the CEO, was going through the Disney Institute with him. So I'm out there as part of this. It was quite interesting to watch all this. And one of the things that I found out about people that go to work for Disneyland 
is the first thing that happens to you when you go to work for Disneyland is you have about 75 hours of training before you get your training for your work assignment. This is just orientation training, about 75 hours to teach you simple things like how to treat what they call the guests. You see, they don't have customers, they have guests. In the Disney world, if you call somebody a customer, it means you're having difficulty with them. It's a code word for I need help. The word that they use for customer is guest. And everyone in the Disney world, they're not called workers, they're called cast members. Because everybody is in the show. It's a grand production. It doesn't matter what you do. You can sell soft drinks, you can sweep the floor, you can be a character. Everybody has got the same responsibility, and that is that we're there to serve the guests. I saw as I walked around the park, number one, you see it's spotless. You probably know that. Okay? But secondly, there are, they do have street, street cleaners out there with their dustpans and their brooms, and they're walking around, and one case I saw them with a dustpan and the broom leaning up a bench, and the person is talking to a group of, of guests answering questions and giving them directions. This is the guy cleaning. Now, you don't normally see that. You go to the state fair, you might find some people cleaning and they won't be interacting with the guests. It won't happen. But out there they do because they're trained to do that. You see, they, they are what Disney does is impart to their workers a worldview. How to see reality and therefore how to live in reality in what we present our value proposition here. And they realize these people don't come to us trained. We have to train them. And so we have to give them our worldview. So they're taking them from that what they would say would be a wrong worldview, which is the worldview of the world, and giving them Disney's worldview. Now, part of Disney's worldview is biblical. It's not totally biblical, but part of it is. And that part that is biblical really blesses them. And so their commitment to training and how they work with people is absolutely critical to producing the product that they produce out there. See that no one takes you captive with hollow and deceptive philosophy. The world's philosophy is always hollow and deceptive. Only biblical philosophy will bring you blessing in the workplace. Whatever it is that you do well is because on some level it's rooted in truth. It's rooted in scripture. Whatever you don't do well is probably rooted in the world. And that's why it doesn't go well. So you've got to see to it that you don't get captured by the world and you learn to live in truth according to a biblical worldview. And he goes on to say this. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you've been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over power, over every power and authority. Now, we have to be very clear. In God's universe, there is authority. There is delegated authority. Now, for those of us that run businesses or senior leaders in businesses, we struggle with this sometimes because we want it to be a one-way street. We want people to be submitted to us, but we don't want to be submitted to anyone. And that's very difficult. One of the marks of someone who will do well in any business activity is, are they submitted to spiritual authority? 
Do they have spiritual fathers in their life guiding them and directing them? Are there men that they respect, that they are underneath as God's representatives in their life, as God's senior partners in their life to guide them and direct them into his will and his ways? If you don't have that, then you're not living under authority, which means you you will find it hard for people to submit to you. Now, you might be autocratic and demand it, but that will not go well. The best way to live in God's universe is to be under authority. Find the people that God has called you to submit to, submit to them. And then as you submit to them, those that are called to submit to you will turn around and submit to you. And that's the way it works. In my life, I've had a natural father and four spiritual fathers. And all five of these men have layered things into me to help me do what it is that God has called me to do. As I look back on it, remember when I first really saw this several years ago, and I started thinking through, I actually was teaching this to a group of men. And when I started teaching it, I broke down and wept. I wept uncontrollably for about five minutes. Now, you're not supposed to do that when you're teaching a class. That's not very manly. But that was one of the most powerful classes I probably have ever taught because those men saw the reality of what that, what that authority had done in my life. And, what, and now I was seeing it and realizing the power of it to help guide me into what God had called me to do. So I encourage you, look and see who is the authority that God has placed in your life. And by the way, God places the authority over you. It's not a choice. You don't get to choose this. God gave you your natural father. God gives you spiritual fathers. And a good picture of how spiritual fathers work would be a a movie like uh, October Sky. Have you seen October Sky? October Sky is a story about an engineer, a NASA engineer who grew up as a son of a coal miner. And his father's vision was whenever he became... uh, Grown, he would take over the mine just like his father had run the mine. But the man, the boy, had no vision to do that. He had no desire to do it. So he has a teacher in school that sees his love of rockets and encourages him. And so with the help of some buddies and the encouragement of the teacher and eventually some other men in the neighborhood, in the area where he lived, he was able to begin to do these experiments with rockets. And eventually won a state fair prize. For, for science in the area of rocketry. And so all along the way, his earthly father is opposing this. But these other spiritual parents were supporting it. In the end, the earthly father saw the destiny of God in the young man and came alongside his man and confirmed him. But you see how God, you can see in the movie how God used all of these various adults in the young boy's life to guide him where God wanted him to go. It was a powerful movie. It's a powerful picture of that reality. You see, authority is very important in God's universe. If you don't understand it and you live properly in it, you will be blocked. You will not get where you're supposed to go. You will not achieve what God has called you to achieve. God has put you here to accomplish his purpose according to his will and his ways. And the only way you'll do it well is under authority. So Paul lays out here for us some simple truths 
about what it is to be partnering with God is number one, recognizing he's sovereignly in control. And that you are the junior partner, he's the senior partner. And recognize he has a call on your life and he wants to direct you in that call. And that includes where you work and how you work and with whom you work and everything you do about work. You see, he is engaged in all of that. He's also designed it where you have to grow up in Christ, mature in Christ. If you don't grow up and mature in Christ, you won't release the potential. You'll be blocked. You probably all know people who have blocked their potential because of their character issues. Character issues are killers. And if you don't have a spiritual parent, a spiritual father and mother in your life helping you get through your character issues, they will continue to block you. Because you cannot self-correct well enough. Now you can see a little bit of it and you can do some things. But you need help in dealing with those character issues. You've got to be rooted and grounded in Christ. You've got to be growing and maturing. You need to be discipled. And then you've got to, be, you've got to guard yourself against unhealthy worldly thinking that's all around us every day. In fact, it would be interesting if you could just take today, and I would challenge you to do this. Take today and take your little devices or iPad or if you still in the pencil pencil and paper error, take your pencil and paper and write down every fine-sounding argument you hear today. A fine-sounding argument is an argument that sounds good, but it's a lie. It's not true. See if you can spot them. See how many you can capture today. I think you may be shocked at how many you hear. The question is, can you hear them? Can you recognize them? Just give me give you some examples of fine-sounding arguments today. Uh, for example, you might hear, you know, here's an opportunity to make a bunch of money. You might hear that today. Somebody might come at you and say, here's the deal. You can make a bunch of money doing this. Okay? That's worldly thinking. You know what biblical thinking is? I want the opportunities that God has ordained for me to pursue. And they may not look like a bunch of money. You know, after all, you know, money's not the deal. What's the deal? When you stand before the Lord, what's going to count? Is it going to be the size of your portfolio? Your net worth? No, it's going to be, did you do my will according to my ways? That's the question. Jesus, at the end of his life, said, Father, I brought you glory on earth. By completing the work assignment you gave me to do. Did you notice that Jesus died penniless? Homeless? He was jobless? Rejected by his followers? Rejected by the religious leaders? Rejected by the political leaders? A criminal? Sentenced to death? Died alone? Did you follow him? That's the greatest leader ever. You describe that to someone, don't tell them it's Jesus. They'd say it in a heartbeat. No, I wouldn't follow that guy. That guy's a loser. Because you are not measuring things biblically. That was the one man that did it right. He's our model. So we've got to be able to sense these fine-sounding arguments. How about, here's another one. I've actually heard this. This may sound strange to you, but I've actually heard this. Okay? We don't pray here. Yeah. Organizations, 
you may be into it and maybe somebody said, you know, we've got a big decision to make. Can we pray? And the CEO says, we don't pray. God's not into this. You know, it's up to us to make the decision and we'll, t- we'll tithe on Sunday. Now, hopefully you recognize pretty quickly that is a fine sounding argument. That is not biblical truth. You need to be praying about everything. Prayer is communion with the Father to get his directive, to understand his will. Whatever decision you've got to make today, the decision is not about the money. client called me this past weekend. This client has a software product, and it's a, it's a business application to help you organize the, the, basically the, flow, the, the organizational chart of your company. It's an org chart program. And he's been developing it for 10 years, and it's, it's basically a desktop machine. Uh, application. So uh, he's asking me, okay, we have an opportunity to sell that product to our competitor who's kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the in the industry. And we put a price on it, and he came back at, at half our price. Surprise, surprise. So he's saying, what do I do? How do I respond to this? Now, he has he also has a partner. My client has another partner in the business. And the other partner said to my client, um, well, we need just to figure out a way to get them up. We can get the price up some way, negotiate, do something. I said, wait a minute. Before you get into that whole drill, you know, have you prayed about this? Have you asked the Lord? What do you think they said? Well, not really. By the way, these two partners are both elders in a church. Okay? They're both, both senior leaders in this church. Both... They, they teach frequently. They're very involved, have been senior leaders for a long time. They're very experienced men. They're not young men at all. So, you know, I could tell as I was starting this conversation, I, I'm starting down a road he hadn't thought about. So I then asked him, I said, have you asked the Lord what he wants to do with that product? You do understand it's his product. You happen to be the steward of it. You see, the world will tell you, well, that's your product. It's your asset, and you need to maximize the value and get all the money you can out of it. And sell it as soon as you can so you can go retire and go do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. Those are all fine-sounding arguments of the world. It's not biblical thinking. So I begin to challenge him. Okay, you, you, you feel led to sell the product. Okay, so what is God saying about this? So one of the things you can ask yourself is, where does God want that product in 50 years? Now, what do you think happened on that at that point? Silence. Because never thought about that. What is it God want this, wants this product to look like in 50 years? Who's supposed to own it? Who's supposed to steward it? And what's the environment? I said, one thing is really clear, and I'm not a technical expert, but everything seems to be going to the cloud. So desktop applications are really becoming antiquated applications. So why would you keep it in a desktop environment? You need to migrate to the cloud. They didn't started thinking about that. I said, so one of the first things you're going to ask yourself if you're thinking long term, and that's how God thinks, is this thing's got to go to the cloud. Does this buyer have the ability and the vision and the resources to take it to the cloud? Well, a whole new level of thought opened up to him that he had never considered before. I said, stop making money the driver. That's what the world does. The world makes money the driver because it's all about me. What God is after is something beyond money. Money is nothing to God. Money is just a tool. Money is like a screwdriver or a hammer. 
If you had a, a garage full of screwdrivers, would you get excited? Probably not. But if you had a garage full of money, you'd get pretty hyper, wouldn't you? Particularly if they're $100 bills and you had a big garage. It'd be pretty exciting. See, we get excited about money because money becomes our God. Money is what drives everything. We've got to put money aside and know that the answer to the question, how much is enough, is whatever I need to do God's will. That's the answer. And we know that God is the creator of money. By the way, do you know there was, there was money in the garden? In fact, do you know there was a bank in the garden? And all the deposits were gold. You look at Genesis 2, there was gold in the garden. You say, why was there gold in the garden? Because the gold has universally been the medium of exchange. I'm reading a book right now on fiat currency. And this whole fiat currency thing started about a thousand years ago in Asia. And it's been a, a mess from the beginning. You know what fiat currency is? It's the currency we have. It's, it's currency that has no backing. There's no, no precious metals behind it, no gold, no silver behind it. That has never worked well. And it will, will not work well because God's monetary system is rooted in gold. Well, that's a separate, separate issue. But the point here is we cannot let money make the decisions. Money is a secondary consideration. It's a byproduct of discerning what God wants done. The real answer in selling any asset is what is the a real question is what is the will of God? What does he want done? And we've got to learn to think like he thinks, long term, big picture, multi-generationally. One of the quick example of fine sounding argument, I was watching CNBC one day and there's a, they were interviewing a man and he was talking about his business and talking about some issues that were coming up in his business and his comment was, yeah, that's an issue that's coming but I'll be long gone by the time it gets here. So I'm not going to worry about it. You see, that's the way the world thinks. It's not, not, going, to, not going to affect me. It's not going to bother me. So I'll let the next generation handle it. Now, what do you think a biblical response would be? Hey, we need to start taking responsibility now for our, the generations to come. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. What are we handing them? We need to be making decisions in light of the long term, beyond us. If we can't think beyond us, then we're just narcissistic people. You see, getting to think biblically is really a stretch for most of us. Because there's nothing in the world that we hear day to day that tells us to do that. Only Christ is the one pointing the way as our senior partner. We've got to learn to let him be the senior partner. And be submitted to him and let him direct and define reality and let him guide and direct us into truth and what he wants done. Because ultimately the only thing that counts is his will and his ways. That's the alignment we've got to go for. So may God give us all the grace to learn to be good junior partners and let the senior partner direct the way. 